It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we will share music from our archives, content from our resources, such as the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, and information about what's happening in the library system. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocows at cows.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cows Community Outreach Department. For more information about Radio Cows, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. If you have questions about anything you hear about on Radio Cows, please call us at 501-320-5793 or email us at radiocows at cows.org. We'd love to hear from you. Radio Cows and Cows now have a feature called Primary Sources. It focuses on people who are making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas. Some you might have heard of and some you haven't heard of but probably want to know about. In addition to what you can hear on Radio Cows, check out cows.org slash podcasts for a free podcast of Primary Sources interviews. This week's podcast features Vivian Lee Schiffer, Kim Sanders interviews Lee, author of Camp Nine, a book about life in and out of the rower internment camp, and about her new film, Relocation Arkansas, a documentary about those whose lives were affected by their internment in the camp. So what is it about filmmaking that appeals to you the most? Oh, golly. You know, I just loved documentaries when I was growing up. I those are back. That was back in the day where... You didn't have DVR. You didn't have DVDs. You didn't even have VHS. Um, you had to catch things on living out at Roar. We had four stations, one of which went off at dusk. That was PBS, I think. Um, and you had to catch things as they came. So you would, I would, I would wait with great anticipation, knowing that there was something a national. It was invariably National Geographic coming on, um, but. I love documentaries. In fact, I was thinking this morning, and I don't even know why I was thinking about it, but I saw a film when I was a young woman called Atomic Cafe. And Atomic Cafe is a fabulous film. It's a documentary, but it's it's very narrative. And, oh, my gosh, I loved that film. And I remembered, for some reason this morning, I was thinking about it. I remember watching it back in the early 80s, I think at a theater in Austin when I lived in Austin. And I was thinking... That's what I want to do. That's my medium. That's how I want to tell stories. And it took all these years to do it. But, um, yeah, I, I, gosh, documentary filmmaking to me is, is a great art. Uh, Errol Morris is a fantastic, uh, his film Tabloid is just wonderful. There are so many great documentaries and even documentaries that are not particularly creatively inspired, that are j simply informational, are still just marvelous. Um, I think people have, people in this day and age, I think, really respond to visual and auditory medium better than reading books. And and you and I were talking before we started this interview. Um, you mentioned about writing and, and how reading a novel, I think, and I don't mean to misquote you, but I think you talked about me, how reading a novel seemed to appeal to you or seemed to draw you in mm -hmm. more than reading information. So if you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. speak to that because that's very important to me. Mm -hmm. There are many fine scholarly books about the incarceration experience. And, of course, I've consulted many. I've, I've spoken to all the authors. They are fine and important. But it seems to me that readers don't connect with those because they have no vehicle to journey into the truth. 
When a person reads a novel, a well-written novel, in my opinion, the person becomes the narrator and they take a real journey. They really feel, they really see, they really experience. You can give them charts with all the statistics and tell them that 8,975 people were at Roar at the height. But until they read a story about a person and become that person, they don't experience Roar. They don't really know. And the same is true of film. Um, Film really takes the audience into a present moment experience that they can't get through flowcharts and PowerPoints and lectures. And I think that's the power of these media. But then that leaves a filmmaker, certainly, and, and I suppose a, a novelist, but that leaves a, an artist of any of these genres with an awesome responsibility because it's so easy to manipulate. It is so easy in the editing room to craft these things so that they tell the story you want it to tell rather than the story it should tell. Would you say that that's been one of the biggest challenges of this? It has not been a challenge for me because I've been, first of all, I'm very attuned to it myself. When I was writing Camp Nine, like I said to you, uh, I think, believe earlier, I may have mentioned that I didn't feel it was my story to tell because I wasn't in the Roar Camp. I wasn't Japanese American. I wasn't African American. I was just a little girl living in Roar, and that's why I chose to tell that story from that perspective was that was the only perspective I felt comfortable telling. When I was making the film, I was never tempted to manipulate, but there were opportunities that presented themselves inadvertently, and I'll give you an example. We record interviews. We talk to people at different times. Um, There are some scenes in the film where a narrator like Richard Yada, one of the stars of the film, is telling an important story. Well, Richards may have told that story three times in three different interviews. So one time he's sitting in a he's wearing a blue shirt, he's sitting on a porch. Another time he's wearing a purple shirt, he's on a golf course. Another time he's wearing a different shirt, he's at Scott, Arkansas. These are three different moments where he's telling the same story. For one reason or another, we may choose to take the audio from different moments. So we can't show him all the time because when he's saying X, he's wearing a purple shirt when we just had him wearing a blue shirt. It's technical. One can, a filmmaker can take those different moments and can splice that material because it is, if it's well done, it's, you can't, a a reader or viewer or listener can't tell the difference. It's easy to manipulate people's words. I was lucky to work with a fabulous editor named Linda Hattendorf, um, who is famous for her film Cats Americatani, which is one of the premier films about the incarceration experience. Linda was very sensitive to that. We could not reorder people's words. We could not put people's words together in any other way than they had already said them because she, her ethics were so high. And I was very grateful for that. As a first-time filmmaker, it was it was really good experience for me to work with somebody who had such high ethics. After reading your novel, and I haven't seen the documentary yet, although I do plan on seeing it in Hot Springs on Wonderful. October Thank 10th you. at 4.30. Um, I've seen a trailer for the film, and I've read your novel. And um, as someone that's from, I guess, the northern part of the Delta, uh, I can kind of pick up on these things. Uh, I'm from Jonesboro, so right. it's an it's a little different than where you're from. It's a much bigger city. Um, it is usually on the maps. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. But <laughs> Jonesboro is a major city <laughs> yeah. compared to Roar, which is not even a town. There, there's your understanding and your love for the Arkansas Delta really permeates through 
your work. It, it's probably not even intentional. It's just, no, it is. It's, it's, it is intentional? You. Thank you okay. so much for saying that. It is absolutely <laughs> intentional. Well, how do you feel being raised in the Delta has affected you or influenced you as an, a person or as an artist? Tremendously. And I will tell you that I am so proud to be from a place that has so much richness. And it's late in my understanding, late coming to my understanding, because as I mentioned earlier, I would be at Roar, and, and of course this was during the 60s, and you know, swing in London and Paris, and my family was well-educated, and, and we had access to—I would love, I would have killed to have gone to a museum, but we didn't have the bookmobile. Um, my family was—we were very lucky in that we were well-educated. We had access to things. Uh, we had encyclopedias around the house, and I poured over them, and, and I never really felt that we were— living in the boondocks. We were, but but I always dreamed that we weren't. And uh, in fact, my, my brother became a Catholic priest and was at the Vatican. I have another brother who's a physicist. You know, we, we aspired to other things. It wasn't until I grew up and moved away and began looking back that I realized how fortunate we were to have that upbringing. There is so much sensory, cultural richness to that tiny area. It gets in your blood. I mean, I think I even say it in the book. I can't remember if I put it in there or took it out. I've taken so much out of that (laughs) book. I can't even remember. But it does get in your blood. And I think about people that come from places like a city, like, say, for example, Houston. My children grew up in Houston. They loved Houston. Houston had museums. Houston had great public schools. Houston had Galleria. Houston had Neiman Marcus and great restaurants and all this, all the, that sort of thing that they could want. But they didn't have what I had. I really had this sense of place. Um, one of, I did this, a blog tour and I was really nervous. It's the first time that I'd had my book reviewed by strangers and then was just going to have it out there. And I was really nervous. And then one by one, these reviews came in, and they were all really positive, and I was so grateful. But one of the best was a reviewer from Australia who read the book, and she said that she felt like she was there. And I thought, that's it. That's what I wanted. I want people to feel the Delta. Surprisingly, even with the advent of the internet and transportation, cell phones, the King's English, you know, those things that were never in the Delta before, it still has that mysterious quality. It's still got that Something when you go out there and you get on the wet side of the levee with those giant trees and knowing that the river's right over there, okay, it's a mile, but it's still right over there. And there are alligators and there's gar and there's copperheads and water moccasins. And I've even seen a coral, a rare coral snake out there on the levee. It just doesn't care who's there, who's not there. It really doesn't care. It is ju- it just exists, and it's so primordial. And I was telling a woman on the plane today here, she was a school teacher, and we were talking about history, and I said, you know, I think that people in Arkansas don't appreciate Arkansas, and they particularly don't appreciate the Delta, and they particularly don't appreciate the southeast section. I said, do you know in Deshay County, not only were there was there one, and, well, okay, Jerome, the, the Camp Jerome was in Chico County, but the hospital was in Drew, but Aurora was in Deshea County, so I'm going to pick on Deshea County. In Deshea County, not only was there a Japanese-American incarceration camp, one of ten in the United States, it's where 
DeSoto died, the explorer. And they had to, the, his colleagues had to hide his body from the Indians because they thought they'd passed him off as a god who would never die, so they had to bury him in the river. It's where La Salle claimed the New World for France. It's where the Arkansas Indians, for whom Arkansas is named, lived. All these things happened in Shea County. Who knows that? Nobody knows that. Only historians know that. Certainly the children who live in Deshea County, who should be so proud to be there, don't know that. There is such a richness and a beauty to the Delta that I think is overlooked. I'd like to change that. Yeah. Well, do you have any plans for upcoming projects? You said that you were writing furiously. I've got so many. Well, the book I'm working on right now is uh, a legal thriller, so it has nothing to do with Arkansas. Um, I have several film projects that I want to work on. Now, one one of the things, Relocation Arkansas is my first film. So the main thing I learned with that film, besides how to make a film, is that you can only make what you can pay for. So I have to get funding for my next project. Um, I have about four or five great ideas that would make fantastic films. They will the, – the first one to get made is the first one that I can find a funder for. So I have to sit down with a list and figure out my topics and decide, you know, who might be a likely funder. But uh, they – most of them have an Arkansas connection. Um did you know that the largest population of Marshallese in the world outside of the Marshall Islands is in Arkansas? I did not know that. Yeah, who does? Some people do. They wow. are. And they're a fascinating story. They, um, the largest population of Marshallese outside the Marshall Islands is in Arkansas. I'd wow. like to do a film on that. Uh, I'd like to do a film on how the... Ivory-billed woodpecker disappeared, which has apparently resurfaced in Arkansas. Maybe, maybe not. But what's fascinating to me is the story of corporate greed that allowed it to disappear in the first place, which actually happened in Louisiana, mm-hmm. but perhaps the resurgence might be in the Delta. Um, oh, my goodness. What else? I have other so many other stories that have to do with Arkansas. I can't even think what they are right now. But I have several projects right now that almost all of which center in Arkansas because Arkansas has so many great stories and there are not a lot of filmmakers in Arkansas. There are a few and they're very fine. But I think we need more. I think so too. And you touched on this earlier. It seems like a lot of people, especially younger people, don't really appreciate Arkansas, especially when you're born here. You usually move away. That's right. And like you were saying, it's not until you move away that you really understand the the character and the energy that Arkansas has, and it would be nice for people to either come start coming back or start staying here. I think one of the small things that I, as a as an artist, might be able to do, um, particularly because what I do is historic. I'm interested in historical events. I'm interested in the history that has occurred right where I'm standing. That's just buried, for example, Napoleon, Arkansas, which fell into the river. I mean, Mark Twain, somebody totally unrelated to any of these conversations. Someone in uh, Texas mentioned something to me about um, Napoleon, Arkansas today. And I said, well, did you know that Mark Twain said that the prettiest girl he ever saw lived in Napoleon? She said, no. I said, yeah, that's there in Deshea County. Another thing in Shea County. Must be a ley line or something. It is. I mean, it, it's just, there's so much. And I think that that's true of pretty much every county in this state, is that there is just this rich history. And it's not that people don't care. My theory on this, and this is my theory on why nobody ever talked about the incarceration camps when I was growing up. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't like people were trying to hide it. It was fairly recent. I mean, when I was born in 1959, the camps had only been gone for 15 years. That's not that long. It's really not. It was recent 
It was a recent event in the minds of people. It wasn't history yet. And I think that's often the case of these things is that the people who know about these moments in history don't think of them as history. And then when they're gone, they're lost because subsequent generations don't know about them. That's why these county historical societies are so important. I think the one in Deshaies County has, has sort of splintered, but I, I've spent years reading their publications over the years. It's so fascinating. Even the most rudimentary article about a, an obscure church somewhere is fascinating. And I just wish that these counties would find new people to take up this mantle of keeping this history alive. Well, I think your documentary would probably do a pretty good job of inspiring people. Thank you. I hope so. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? No, just uh, support your local historical society (laughs) and keep those stories coming. And and I would say also that if there's anybody out there who, who, like me for years, thought that you have to be invited to be a writer. You have to be invited to be a filmmaker, that, you, that there's some secret club. There's not, y'all. You just sit down. I'll, I'll tell you this. Writing a book is free. Making a film is expensive. So you might want to start with the book. But there's no invitation to do it. You sit down. You open your computer. You start writing. And before you know, you've put one word after the other, and you've got a book. And it may not be good. Mine were, my first couple were terrible. But you're going to get the hang of it. So if you have a book in you, write it. All right. Well, thank you, Vivian. Thank you so much. That was a portion of an interview with Lee Schiffer, author and filmmaker on Primary Sources. To hear more of the interview with Lee, please visit the Primary Sources podcast at cals.org slash podcasts. This month in Arkansas history, on October 1, 1942, the War Relocation Authority initiated a new comprehensive leave or resettlement program for the incarcerated Japanese Americans in the 10 relocation camps around the country. All classifications of leaves were subject to specific conditions and could be denied or revoked at any time. The WRA's leave and resettlement program met with limited success each month usually fewer than several hundred well-qualified and socially acceptable Japanese Americans were able to clear the elaborate process and earn the right to live in relative freedom outside the camps. As with all relocation centers, the two Arkansas camps were mainly able to resettle only the young, college-bound, well-educated, or well-connected Japanese Americans. What's on your to-do list? Check some things off of it at your local Central Arkansas Library System branch or online at www.cals.org. Whether you need to have a document notarized, check consumer reports to decide which food processor to buy, pick up the latest DVD, or download the newest songs and television shows, the Central Arkansas Library System can help. Get these kinds of items checked off a to-do list at no charge. For more information, visit www.cals.org. Since 1998, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies has hosted a monthly lecture series called Legacies and Lunch. The series is free and open to the public. The lectures are always from noon to one on the first Wednesday of each month at the Cal's downtown campus. Speakers from around the state and beyond are invited to present topics that lead the audience to a greater understanding and appreciation of Arkansas history and culture. Legacies and Lunch is sponsored in part by the Arkansas Humanities Council. The successful battle to win women's right to vote is among the first modern victories of nonviolent civil rights strategies. In America, the women's suffrage movement began prior to the Civil War. Many women believed that abolition would result in the end of all subject classes, giving all adults the right to vote. In Bernadette Cahill's lecture, Women Who Rock the Vote in Little Rock, from the May 2013 Legacies and Lunch, we heard about the national fight for women's suffrage and Arkansas's role in that fight. 
that without a say in government, with women's exclusion from politics and lawmaking, women were not free citizens, making a mockery of the notion of American democracy. Now these ideas had been expressed long before 1919, during the post-emancipation debates about freedom, freedmen after the Civil War. And women had suspended their campaign for, for equal rights, including the vote, for the duration of the war. Many leaders at this time, like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, had campaigned for the complete abolition of slavery after the Emancipation Proclamation. And women expected to be included in any reforms. In 1865, Antony stated women's position in a speech in Ottawa, Kansas. The inalienable rights of the Negro belong equally to women. Government of universal manhood suffrage will not be a true republic. Still, one half of the people will be in subjection to the other half. And the time will come when an accounting must be made with this other subject class. The duty of the national government is to guarantee to every citizen the right of self-protection. And this right for woman as for man is vested in the ballot. Antony was arguing for universal adult suffrage as the guarantee of individual liberty which meant including women in any voting reforms. Now, living in Ottumwa, Kansas in May 1865, according to that year's census, was Clara Alma Cox. She was a school teacher. And there's a good chance that she heard Antony's speech that day because it took place on July the 4th. It was a huge celebration, obviously. In August 1866, Clara was in Little Rock to marry George W. McDermott, who was stationed in the arsenal. A 1919 article described Clara McDermott as an abolitionist of the most pronounced type. She believed in, <laughs> she believed in equality for all people regardless of sex or color. And I always sense the disdain in that, uh, that quotation, the way it was written. Anyway, at this point in 1866, the stage was set for the struggle for women's suffrage in Arkansas. Clara Alma Cox McDermott became the preeminent suffragist in Little Rock. During her time, the right to vote was one of many women's causes linked under the larger heading of reform. The causes included in the women's reform movement included poverty, racial equality, women's education, and temperance. A good introduction to the fight for women's causes in Arkansas is the biographical entry for Clara McDermott in the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, encyclopediaofarkansas.net. Arkansas historian and journalist Bernadette Cahill describes early defeats in Arkansas in the fight for women's right to vote. Enter Arkansas. The 14th Amendment was being ratified in 1868, and in February that year, Miles Langley, a delegate at the Arkansas Constitutional Convention, attempted to preempt this injustice to women by including universal adult suffrage in the Arkansas Constitution. His proposal was thrown out, and everybody was laughing at it. Actually, if you read the newspapers at the time, it's quite disgusting what went on. But now, this defeat of women's suffrage in 1868 is, I'm sorry to say, a terrible failure in Arkansas history because if Arkansas had given women the vote in 1868, it would have been the very first state in the Union to do so. And I think that is a sad thing in our history to be carrying forward with us. But anyway, the U.S. was still not finished with discriminating against women. Although the measure was defeated in 1868, there were male sympathizers for the cause in Arkansas. In fact, during Susan B. Anthony's 1889 visits in Helena, Little Rock, and Fort Smith, she was introduced by no less than Governor James Eagle. Later, however, Anthony would lament that, though warmly received in Arkansas, her lectures were not well attended. Equal suffrage of all citizens was a consistent concern for women's groups across the nation. 
Bernadette Cahill explains, in the words of Susan B. Anthony, why women were concerned with equality across all classes. Now, Susan B. Anthony had already declared during her own case, if we once establish the false principle that United States citizenship does not carry with it the right to vote in every state in this union, there is no end to the petty freaks and the cunning devices that will be resorted to to exclude one and another class of citizens from the right of suffrage. And Anthony was 100% right on the money, having already established through women, which is effectively 50% of the population, a gigantic restriction on citizens' right to vote. It was relatively easy then to turn on a much smaller group. In 1875, a year after Miner's case, the US Supreme Court began to limit the restrictions of the 15th Amendment on discrimination against freedmen. So you can see how the two, um, how the two uh, discriminations were tied together. And this was a huge Im um, impetus to emerging Jim Crow laws. For once, black men could be excluded from the vote by various means, not relating to race. They could be excluded from anything. You can learn more about the intertwined concerns of racial equality and women's suffrage in the research collection of the Arkansas Studies Institute, home of the Willard Gatewood Collection, a major collection of American civil rights research publications. Now back to Bernadette Cahill's Legacies and Lunch Lecture, Women Who Rock the Vote in Little Rock. But the cause picked up momentum in Arkansas in 1888 when Clara McDermott, remember her from Kansas? She emerged from the domestic sphere and helped found the Arkansas Equal Suffrage Association. Newspapers show that several suffrage meetings took place here in Clara's house at 1424 Center Street in Ruth lucky to have a house still standing associated with that history. And the letter announcing the finding of the AESA, which I've got up here with it, was very likely written in that house because she was living there at the time. Now, Clara's work led to another link with the national movement. Susan B. Anthony's visit in 1889 Antony spoke here twice, once on temperance and once on suffrage. Uh, the suffrage one is at the Capitol Theatre and uh, the one on temperance was at the Grand Opera House on Main. Now that block still, is, it's a heritage block now, but the actual building is, is gone, unfortunately. And this was Antony's first visit to the South. In 1889, Clara built headquarters for women's groups. And both temperance and suffrage workers met there. It was 303 to 305 Markham Street, and they met there for several years in the 1890s. The domestic sphere was the position of significance for most married American women. To learn why the temperance movement and the suffrage movement were so closely allied in the 19th century, check out the book, John Barleycorn Must Die, The War Against Drink in Arkansas, by Ben Johnson. You can request a copy to be sent to any cow's location. Suffrage is a strange word. You might think that suffrage was somehow linked to the concept of allowance, as in to suffer something to happen. However, many etymologists believe that the word derives from the Latin word frangere, meaning to break. Subfrangere would mean to break into little pieces and refers to the practice of using a broken piece of tile as a ballot in the Roman Senate. From the Roman Empire to Arkansas in 1917, Adolphine Fletcher Terry emerges in the fight for women's right to cast their votes. Terry allied herself with the new National Women's Party, led by Alice Paul, a distinctively more aggressive women's group than Susan B. Anthony's National American Woman Suffrage Association. Alice Paul visited in 1916 the state of the Marion Hotel, and she achieved quite a coup. Not only did she establish a local organization, Adolphine Fletcher Terry became a member of the NWP's National Advisory Council. And the link between Alice Paul's group at the NWP and Adolphine Fletcher Terry was Lucy Burns, uh, Alice Paul's second in command. 
she had been at Vassar two years ahead of, uh, of Adolphine Fletcher Terry, and Terry credits Burns with awakening her to racism at the time they were at school together. Arkansas joined the NWP at the national level. This was the first picket that went out in January 1917, the very first. And the woman on the extreme right is called Pauline Floyd of El Dorado. And I don't know anything else about her, but this one, thing, one photograph shows that Arkansas was involved in the new suffragism, the more pushy, aggressive, whatever you want to use. I don't like the word militant because people think that's violent, and these women were non-violent. Um, when the end, this, 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 they were part of it when the NWP began to up the ante to, to win women the vote. Now the NASA didn't like the, NW, the NWP upstarts. They were young. They began to steal the older ladies' thunder, and they also considered them unladylike because women weren't supposed to be standing outside the White House or anywhere with banners and pickets and saying things that rocked the boat. Particularly when you start quoting back to President Wilson talking about democracy, when you don't have, you haven't got democracy in your own country, you're not supposed to do things like that. Particularly if you're a woman. On July 28, 1919. Governor Charles Bruff called a special session for the purpose of ratifying the 19th Amendment. The vote passed 74 to 15, making Arkansas the 12th state to ratify the 19th Amendment. The momentum from winning the right to vote in Arkansas kept women's reform groups active and vital in the state. After ratification, women's suffrage workers conducted a well-organized education and registration campaign and women all over the country worked to register all el eligible women voters. And this is what happened in Arkansas when the League of Women Voters was actually, this is a report of it, we found it in December 1919, the NASA rolled over into the, the League of Women Voters. But one important feature of registration was that African-American women all over the country rushed to register, and they even filed suit when they were blocked. So immediately after ratification, the suffrage amendment had an impact on race. In Arkansas in 1920, the first black man to run for governor was big news. And women's suffrage had made this possible. J.H. Blount, he's the one running for governor, counted on the Negro men and women of the state to elect him. And Blount's potential vote obviously had doubled with the 19th Amendment. In fact, it seems that black women were more interested in the vote than white women. This new story from North Little Rock after the November 1920 election tells the tale. In one polling place, it was said that 50 Negro women, but only one white woman voted. Women in Little Rock had gone to great lengths to make the right to vote a household topic. Suffrage organizations arranged a suffrage ball day at Cavanaugh Field, where a percentage of traveler baseball game receipts was donated to the women's cause. You can see who will be the next Legacies and Lunch speaker by going to butlercenter.org and clicking News and Events. Legacies and Lunch is free and open to the public. The lectures are always from noon to one on the first Wednesday of each month at the Cal's Main Library campus. Legacies and Lunch is sponsored in part by the Arkansas Humanities Council. This month in Arkansas history. According to an article in the Arkansas Democrat published on October 16, 1916, membership in the women's suffrage movement had increased and gained momentum significantly during the past few years. In October 1914, a state convention in Little Rock had officially organized the Arkansas Women's Suffrage Association. The Political Equality League joined with the Federation of Women's Clubs, and once again, a women's suffrage amendment was proposed for the Arkansas Constitution. This time, the amendment passed. However, four amendments were to be voted on, but according to state law, only three could go before the public. 
Therefore, the women's suffrage amendment ultimately failed, just as the previous one had in 1911. On Friday, November the 4th, Arkansas Sounds is proud to present Arkansas blues legend Sadell Davis in concert at the Cal's Ron Robinson Theater in downtown Little Rock. General admission tickets are $10 and are available now at arkansasounds.org. Helena native and blues legend Sadell Davis will perform with duo Zach and Papa Benz and band Brethren to celebrate Davis's 90th birthday in his 63-year career. Davis, a wheelchair-bound polio survivor who played guitar with a butter knife, will present a career retrospective that will include his own original music and touch on his collaborations with other artists, such as fellow Arkansan Robert Palmer, Robert Nighthawk, Peter Buck, Barrett Martin, and Colonel Bruce Hampton in the Aquarium Rescue Unit. Don't miss Arkansas blues legend Sadell Davis live in concert on Friday, November the 4th at the Cal's Ron Robinson Theater in downtown Little Rock. General admission tickets are $10. For more information and tickets, please visit arkansasounds.org. It's time for Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows. That's Rex Nelson, who's head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and who writes the food blog Southern Fried, and Paul Austin, who's executive director of the Arkansas Humanities Council, talking about Arkansas food, festivals, and folks. I had a contact just this week from somebody who is doing, and I love this idea, a big, I think it's going to be a coffee table size book, The Great Photography, but it's on the Grand Prairie of Arkansas. Really? And uh, it, it's going to have a, a food chapter in it and uh, places that duck hunters like to go. So uh, let me let me try out some of the places. All right. I started, of course, with Craig's and Duvall's Bluff. Yeah. It, it remains my personal favorite barbecue in the state, and I can assure you it's fed thousands and thousands of duck, of duck hunters, hunters through yeah. the years. Yeah. Yeah. Not only those in there, but those getting it by the pound by to the take pound. back to right. their camps. To go. So, that on there. And then, of course, next, as you know, my favorite catfish is right down the road. It's yeah, Murray's. Murray's, yeah. So I, I put it on there. It's not in the old original location in Duvall's Bluff anymore. It's just west of Hazen. But, um, you know, I, I would put uh, – he's he not fancy enough to be a chef. I think Stanley Young would tell you he's a cook. But, but I would put Stanley Young up against any cook anybody. in the state. Wouldn't you? His black and duck breast mm -hmm. could be served in New York City. I yeah. guarantee you. Absolutely. Yeah. I would put Stanley Young up against anybody. So, you know, even though the new place doesn't have the charm of the old rabbit warren of trailers that was there in Duvall's – the food is as good as ever. And as you know, he serves a lot of duck clubs, yeah, too. Right. He gets paid partly in ducks. That's yeah. why he's always got a <laughs> freezer full of them. You know, there once was a place, and I, I don't think you'll remember this, but I've talked about my grandparents were from Prairie County, and we would go down there. But there was a place that had great catfish. And I actually found, found the uh, Arkansas State Archives actually had an old picture of it, uh, and it was just like I remembered it on file that was called The Journey's End. I always loved that name. <laughs> And Where it was, was a it? second great catfish place in Duvall's Bluff. In Duvall's Bluff. Yeah, used to have Murray's and used to have the Journey's Inn, too. So they wanted some places that are now gone. Yeah. And so I put the Journey's End on my list. Uh, of the new places in that area of the state, and by new, I mean I mean in the last few decades, yeah, actually. Right, right. But Dondi's and Desart. yeah. Great catfish. Great catfish. Great view of the river. Steaks on the, on the, on the uh, buffet. Yeah. Catfish steaks. Well, that actually has to go on the list. And then uh, George Eldridge's Tamale Factory in, yeah, in Gregory. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Has, to, has to go on the list. Now, another place that is long gone that needs a mention, uh, there was a place there in Desert. Great name, especially if they're kind of focusing on duck hunting on the Grand Prairie. It was called the Sportsman's One Stop. <laughs> and that was a good place to eat. Yeah. I um, like that. Uh, some unfortunate news that I did not realize it had closed last year, but I always liked the fact that down at Gillette, home of the Gillette Coon Supper, right. of course, you had the Rice Motel, and the restaurant was called The Patty. 
to the rice paddy. <laughs> but the paddy closed last yeah. year as I, as I was doing some is, online the school research. school is closed and now yep. the rice paddy. Yeah, the rice paddy's gone. So that was that was another one of those. Uh, also in the gone but not forgotten category was one of your favorites, and that was the riverfront at Brassville. Yeah, yeah. It was the formal name. W.O.'s yeah, is what w. all the locals what we called it. it. Yeah. yeah, Good catfish. Yeah. Got tired of doing it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've got a connection with his daughter. And there were now people that are living there, as you and I found out, about 6.30 one morning, right? We were afraid we were going to get shot for waking them up. Lucky we got out of there. (laughs) At least we weren't attacked by pit bulls, but we didn't get out of the truck. No, no, we did not. And I think his daughter now— see if he was still in business. Maybe. I'm not sure. I think it's his daughter is doing this, uh, the uh, uh, freshwater caviar harvesting. Yeah. Yeah. That goes. I understand that, too. Another long-gone place— was in the old Quonset hut at Stuttgart, the Little Chef. Did you ever eat there? Never, never ate there. Oh, it was a classic. And when they built that new overpass over the railroad yeah. tracks, they tore it down. Yeah. But uh, the bypass cost it. But Little Chef was a famous place in Stuttgart. Another long gone one in Stuttgart was actually a private club called the Pam Pam Club. I've heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. P A M P A M. It was a classic with duck hunters. And um, I will never forget. Uh, I was in there one day with a friend of mine, an uh, elderly waitress. She she had probably been there since they started the Pam Pam Club. Came over. My friend was wearing his ball cap in the restaurant, as so many people now do. She jerked the cap off his head and said, son, we don't wear caps in here. This is a class joint. So, <laughs> I want you to know the Pam Pam was a class joint, at least at least by Stuttgart standards. That's right. They it do was have a class joint. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I can see... Some beautiful photography of, like at Craig's, yeah. right, right photographer. So I, I sent him a whole list. Another one I put on there, because I know a lot of duck hunters stopped there and got things through the years, was the place in England, the Spradlin's Dairy Delight. And Cat Robinson has written extensively about this. They claim to have invented the Frito Chili Pie. Did you realize <laughs> that? No. <laughs> Not from Texas or one of those places. They say they invented it at Spradlin's Dairy Delight in England. So there you have it. Well, uh, I'll push back a little. The dairy bar at Porsche claims they invented the. Oh, really? Okay. okay. I can remember going there and getting a, you know, you got it in the, uh, the the little sack of Fritos. Yeah. Tore that open, put the chili in. That's how they served it. Oh, yeah. In the Frito sack. A- absolutely. So <laughs> I, I, I put that on the uh, I, I put that on the list. And then another one, unfortunately, gone. Somebody tried to reopen it again, and then it went out of business again. Was the old Georgetown one stop yeah, down on the White yeah. River couldn't, for couldn't river caught though, catfish, they? but gone but not forgotten. You're listening to Chewing the Fat with Rex Nelson and Paul Austin on Radio Cows and KABF eighty eight point three Little Rock. I do have to say, and of course it is on the list and still going strong, uh, and that being Jeans and Brinkley, you know our friend Gene DePriest. Right. Had a surprise 80th birthday party for oh, him a few really? Sundays ago oh, that I yeah. drove over to Brinkley for. His <laughs> daughter surprised him. He was and, open. Gene uh, has never closed a day in the, I think, 22 years since he took the place over. That includes Christmas Day. That includes Thanksgiving Day. And that includes the day he had the big fire. He didn't want to break his record, so he opened back in the back room. The front had pretty much burned down. I mean, it was a it was a bad fire. He was open. And... Uh, as my friend Wiley Meacham told me, because I brought that up again, I said, well, Gene was even open that day. And he said, yeah, the smell of the smoke and the burned wood was so bad you couldn't eat. But Gene could say he was open because I came in here to have a cup of coffee. <laughs> now, Rex, <laughs> you need to damage. refer him to the places on the other side of the bridge there at Duval's Bluff. The dairy bar. The dairy yeah. bar. Yeah. And there was a, uh, and I don't know the name of it, there was a restaurant right next to it that someone looks like they're The old building? It. I think the that old was building. Journey's Inn that I was talking it about. It may have been. Yeah. Uh-huh. It, it looks like they, yep. someone's trying to restore it, but I haven't seen much movement lately. But I, Yeah, somebody was bar, doing some work in it, and I think they ran out of money because I never noticed yeah. anybody in there yeah. anymore. The dairy bar had wonderful catfish. In fact, my uh, friend uh, Dag, who lives at uh, Dag Skinner that mm-hmm. lives in Brinkley, he claimed it was the best. He liked it better than uh, Riverside at yeah. uh, than W.O.'s. And I, I have never been in, of course, but I love the sign, of course, in the old downtown sector of Duval's Bluff. 
you've got the watering hole, shall we say, called the grasshopper yes, with yes. the sign that says, arrive grumpy and leave happy. That's you've right. got to love that sign. We need to stop there one of these times. Yeah, at the grasshopper. Usually it's too early. It, it would be like right. an E.F. Hutton ad if these two city boys walked <laughs> in. Wide, yeah, <laughs> you're, not, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> as, uh, as I've had to uh, note occasionally... Uh, Probably need to take off my bow tie before yeah. I walk in. Yeah, not, before not, I went in the grasshopper at Duval's Bluff. <laughs> now, I, I did send them, and then since it was on my mind, I found an old picture of the building falling in and posted it on social media. But I said, you know, if you're going to do entertainment places and including eating places, there were some famous ones on the Grand Prairie. And then a lot of people remember this. There was the old 1170 Club in yeah. Hazen, which yeah. you've probably heard oh, of, yeah. where Arkansas 11 and U.S. Right. 70 joined yeah. uh, there. But the 1170 was a classic. And uh, not only when we were over at Desark, but my station to listen to was KAAY, of course, in those days. Sure. And 1170, I remember, used to advertise on KAAY what <laughs> bands they would have coming through that Friday and Saturday night. It well, was quite a place in the 60s and maybe I, into the early 70s. I'm going to Jonesboro tomorrow to sit in on a meeting that uh, ASU's having. They've got a grant, and it may have been an NEA, NEH grant, I'm not sure. Where they're going to be doing stuff at the museum about um, rockabilly music in mm, Arkansas. What a tradition. 67 and all of that. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I was thinking about, you know, all of the iconic places in Newport and Swifton, mm-hmm. you know, Bob King's. And was it the Half Moon at Newport? Silver Moon. Silver Moon. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, of course, in the early days, there were places between Walton Ridge and Pocahontas. Yep. And... Uh, that could be a really good exhibit uh, if they uh, if they'll do it right. Now I guess they maybe they'll have to include the Beatles. You know the Beatles were at Walnut Ridge, <laughs> flew in there for some reason. I'm forgetting the story. Their manager friend had a farm yes, up at Poplar Bluff or something. Yes, they were just getting away for a few days, yeah. and that was the nearest airport that could handle their private plane yeah. because, of course, that was a World War II training facility right. Right. there at Walnut Ridge. So it has a very long runway. Yeah. Uh, which is still there. Still there, yeah. yeah. In yeah. fact, there's a restaurant there that's in an, in old, an old Southwest airline. <laughs> yeah, airline. Exactly. Parachute in. Parachute in. You can set in the seat. Parachute seats. in, parachute <laughs> out. Yeah. Walter yeah. Ridge, which I think actually college city, but now it's they've consolidated. Actually, it's where Southern Baptist or yeah. Williams Baptist is. You know, when this movie about the drug runner Barry Seal comes out, you think somebody would open a restaurant at the Mina Airport, don't you? You think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. When is to that coming out? On it. I was time told now, it's filmed. Yeah. And oh, yeah. They're delaying it. was a pretty high-budget movie. Tom yeah. Cruise is not cheap. No, not at all. Not uh, at all. <laughs> that could revitalize so, Amina. Oh, maybe, maybe there's an idea for us. We can, we can open a open an inn there. Uh, I don't know if uh, the Drug Runner Inn would be a real good <laughs> real good for business, but, uh, you, you know, know, we could play off the movie somehow and open a place there at the airport. Uh, well, I'm afraid that my investment's going to be at uh, – the uh, cave courts in Cave City. That's oh, okay. Jan and I are thinking about opening, uh, opening, restoring that, and opening that up as a. Tour. Or maybe we could pay him just a little bit for naming rights, and call it the Colonel Oliver North Restaurant there at Mina, <laughs> since he was supposed to be involved in all of this. The Bud McFarlane Inn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, that could be. Yeah. Well, you know, as we that, look back that, on the old Iran Contra here, it wasn't that long ago, was it? No, it really wasn't. So late eighties when I was in people Washington, around that are still yeah. relevant to the issue. Yeah, maybe that, that's the problem. Yeah, the hearings were in eighty seven, so I, maybe late eighty six, and then yeah. eighty seven. So yeah, that might be part of it. But you think somebody would capitalize on that? I I would have to say, from a national standpoint, even though there are much larger airports, the Mina Airport is probably the most famous most airport famous. in Arkansas, yeah, probably. wouldn't you think? You know, I think the movie was going to be called Mina. Yeah. But they've changed the name to something else. I'm yeah. not sure what happened, but Well. And was it I wonder was it filmed here? I don't even know. I, I think most of it was filmed in other states. Yeah. But Kinda of like course that. a large a large part of the story is here. Was here. Yeah. yeah. Um Barry Seal actually met his demise now on the old airline highway between Baton Rouge and New Orleans right. in a rundown motel down there. Yeah. Well, same kind of, uh, same kind of motel in the same area along Airline Highway where your buddy Jimmy Swagger got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy. I got trapped in a hotel 
in, at the airport, the holiday, uh, holiday in holiday. I remember that used to have the holodomes. Oh yeah, which are in your room. It always smelled like chlorine because oh, you had those hard. indoor pools yeah, and those holodomes. Yeah. Well, it came a three foot rain in an hour and a half in New Orleans, and we were trapped in the in the hotel. The staff couldn't leave. We ran out of plates. It was just a nightmare. <laughs> and we had some girls from Oklahoma that were waiting. Across the parking lot no, to get watch to out their, for those Oklahoma girls. I know to get to their car to get stuff out of the car. The cars were flooded. It was just a horrible mess, and so a bunch of us were watching them and making fun of them and hollering at them. And they got the car and they come back and all of a sudden these girls start screaming and hollering and they're pulling off their clothes and we're going, what on earth? Well, a big pot of these fire, fire ants had floated Huge into Huge problem after Katrina when it New Orleans flooded. It was just flooded. a Seriously. god-awful mess. Just yeah. hit them all over the place. It was terrible. Yeah. yeah. And we didn't. It was a very weird conference. I was, uh, couldn't go to Bourbon Street. Couldn't get out of the... Had to stay in the Holodome. In the Holodome at... Is it uh, Metairie or where is the airport? Yeah, yeah it's Kenner. Kenner, uh-huh. yeah, it's yeah, Kenner. Yeah, at Kenner. Uh-huh. I know exactly where you're talking yeah. about. You know, they tore down. It had been different names through the years, but they finally tore down what was the old holodome here in North Little Rock, yeah, right, right on the interstate. It yeah. was a holodome. But back in my young sports writing days, uh, the old Arkansas Intercollegiate Conference used to always have its preseason football news conference and its preseason basketball news conference. And that was... That was a big thrill for a yeah. small-town sports editor from Arkadelphia to get to drive up and have the buffet lunch there at the Holodome. The you know, you got, a free, got a free lunch out of the deal. <laughs> and I would cover the news conferences. The, uh, College of the Ozarks, now University of the Ozarks in Clarksville, uh, had this very colorful head coach named Jack Holly. And uh, one of the best Jack Holly lines I ever remember, I have since used it, he said, now, I don't want to say those officials were bad in our game last night, but if he had had one more eye, he'd have been Cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> not good. No, Did not, not appreciate the officiating. Not at all. Well, now, I always blame that. That's my standard line. What happened to the Hogs or what happened to the Indian or the Red Wolves referees? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Though I have to say, Rex, I don't want to get, you know, we – we like to avoid politics. That's dangerous. But oh, sports is even politics worse. On this but I have to say, UCA beating the uh, the Red Wolves was that's news. It was a surprise. I certainly I do picks on my blog every week, and I certainly missed that one. We but, may get to keep uh, this coach for a while. He may not be. You know, I, I spent many many a year talking about the old AIC broadcasting games from UCA before they made the move up to yeah. what's now FCS yeah. when they were Division Two and NAI before that. My wife's favorite story. Unfortunately, it's true. You know, some of those you say, unfortunately, they're true. But one of her favorite stories to tell on me is we were had both been living in Washington D.C. Uh, we decided to move back to Arkansas after the wedding. We were dealing with four states. Well, three states in the district. We were moving from D.C. to Arkansas. We had the wedding in Corpus Christi, Texas. We honeymooned in New Orleans. Well, we fly back in from New Orleans to Little Rock. We only had one car that I had left at our new apartment or whatever. So we took a cab in uh, to get the car, and then we got the car at the airport, and it was Melissa's first night to live in Little Rock. And the Washita broadcast crew had said, look, you were part of the broadcast back before you moved to D.C. We want to make you a part of this. So without even showing her the apartment we were going to live in, we got in the car and drove to Conway. And, of course, you've got to do pregame show and postgame show and get there early. So it's about a six-hour process. I left her in the stands for six hours by herself while I went into the— it went into the press box. And she's love. with me 27 it years must have later. Been love. Yeah. <laughs> first, that was her first night in Arkansas to sit in the stands for six hours at what's now UCA without you, knowing a soul. You've been doing them ever since, almost. Without, yeah, without knowing a soul. That's Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows. With Rex Nelson, head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and the writer of the food blog Southern Fried. And Paul Austin, Executive Director of the Arkansas Humanities Council.
Radio Cows is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System's Community Outreach Department, as well as its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, please visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Radio Cows was produced this week by Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin, John Miller, Chris Stewart, Keeley Wooten, David Strickland, and Glenn Whaley. Voices by John Miller and Jasmine Joe. Engineering and editing by Michael Stotts and Anna Lancaster. Our production manager is Glenn Whaley. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. For Radio Cows, I'm John Miller. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, Friday at noon, here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.